Hello, everyone. This is Brad Thomas with The Ground Up, and I'm back again with another CEO interview. And of course, today, uh, one of the topics I'm really happy to talk about is net lease REITs, which is one of my favorite uh, property sectors in the REIT space. And I'm joined today to discuss that with Mark Manheimer. Mark is the CEO of NetStreet uh, REIT, uh, ticker symbol NTST. Mark, it's good to see you today. Yeah, likewise. Excited to, to get rolling here. Great. Well, um, you know, August uh, 2020, uh, NetStreet became a public, publicly traded company. Of course, you were a private company before that um, and took this uh, legacy portfolio uh, to the public market. So uh, not quite a year, um, but uh, certainly uh, you, you, you've got some, uh, you know, you got a little bit of experience now in the public space. And um, let's, if we could, Mark, before we kind of get into the company, would you mind just, I'd love to hear from you uh, about the net lease market today, just an overview of what are you seeing out there in terms of the kind of supply and demand uh, opportunities that, that you're seeing in the, uh, in the marketplace? Yeah, sure. So, you know, the, the net lease market, I think what is oftentimes missed uh, about the market when people talk about it uh, is A, how large it is. Uh, and then I think I heard, you know, another CEO recently you know, mentioned that in the U.S. it's about $4 trillion. Uh, I think they're doing a little bit more international, but saying it's $8 trillion out in, out in uh, Europe. So just a, a massive uh, opportunity set. And then, uh, so massive supply. And then, you know, the demand is certainly, uh, you know, uh, kicked up, you know, you know, from 1031 buyers, you know, doctors, dentists, finance worth individuals, small family offices, uh, institutional capital has, has kind of poured in, uh, as well as a number number of, of public REITs. Uh, and so for us, you know, you know, managing through that, you know, we've got a very, uh, you know, well-defined acquisition criteria and what we're trying to do with our portfolio uh, in a niche that I think is an area where maybe doesn't have, you know, quite as much competition, which I think, you know, we, we can certainly get into a lot in a lot more detail, which I think is a bit of our, our competitive Great. And uh, again, I think you were one of three companies that listed recently in the net lease uh, sector. Uh, so certainly a lot of uh, new new demand in, in, uh, in terms of the REIT space. Now you're based out in Texas, uh, but your company has a pretty broad geographic footprint. So can you talk a little bit about your existing portfolio, where those properties are located, and, and kind of what is your I guess, key differentiation with your other net lease REITs in terms of the, the types of properties that you're acquiring. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, we're in 38 states, like you mentioned, we're geographically diverse across the country and continuing to build on, on that diversity as we increase the size of the portfolio, you know, 203 properties at year end, uh, about a little bit over $700 million uh, in, in gross asset value. Uh, you know, 10 and a half years of weighted average lease term. So, you know, pretty long term there. Also, uh, you know, looking at the lease expiration schedule, we have less than 1% of our leases expiring before 2025. So, uh, you, know, you know, very focused right now on, on the acquisition side of the table. Uh, you know, 70% of, uh, of our income comes from investment grade tenants. Uh, another 8% comes from what we define as investment grade profile. Uh, and that's, you know, tenants with more than a billion dollars in revenues and less than two times leverage. You know, typically, that's going to be, you know, a Hobby Lobby or an Ollie's uh, or, you know, a tenant that just doesn't have a need for it for a credit rating, uh, typically with no debt or, or very little debt. So there's, you know, not much reason for them to go out and get a rating. Uh, but we think we're taking, you know, very, a very similar risk profile and getting a little bit more yield there. So we're trying to expand that uh, on the margin. 
very focused on uh, what we define as you know defensive industries, you know, and retail that is well positioned for a post-e-commerce world. And, and really, there's really three subsectors in the in the defensive industries. Uh, that's going to be you know, more than half of our half of our portfolio comes from uh, necessity. Uh, so that's going to be grocery, pharmacy, uh, you know, home improvement. Uh, you know, there's you know, another sector uh, that, you know, that we're seeing more and more growth is really that deep discount sector, you know, your TJ Maxx, Ross uh, in Burlington and those, those types of tenants that have really been thriving pre-pandemic. And then, you know, once you know, things start to reopen, you know, that's really where consumers have rushed back the most. And then service, uh, you know, so that's going to be restaurants, convenience stores, uh, where there you know, needs to be a, a physical location to get to the customers really in the last, last few miles of distribution. You know, you think about restaurants, you know, you know, I think most people thought of that as you need that, you know, go to the restaurant to get it. That's not really the case anymore. Uh, so that really, you know, when we think about the real estate side of the equation, which is just as important uh, as the credit side for us, uh, you know, we want fungible real estate so that, you know, in the event that we take an asset back, that we can replace the rents with another tenant. It's, you know, very fungible where a lot of different uses, uh, you know, can come into play. You know, you know, restaurants, you know, we need to have a drive-through, otherwise we're not going to buy it. Uh, there needs to be, you know, enough parking to, you know, to, to be able to handle Uber Eats and, and, and you know, the, the changing uh, consumer demand. Uh, and so, you know, I think that's that's really our differentiating factor, you know, the quality of our real estate and the quality of our tenancy, I think, is is best in class, you know, objectively, credit-wise, I think, you know, the numbers speak for themselves. Uh, but even, you know, you know, when we were putting the, the strategy together and deploying capital, uh, you know, going, going back to 2019 as, as a public company or a private company, um, you know, we were very focused on, you know, what's, what works in retail and having tenants that have great access to capital and are using that capital to change, you know, to adapt to the change, you know, survival of the fittest, you know, that's who can adapt. That's not necessarily who's strongest today. Uh, and so the, those tenants have really thrived. And, you know, we, we did have a lot of pushback from some institutional investors, you know, back in 2019, it was very much a risk on environment. Everybody was saying, well, go buy top golf and movie theaters and, you know, you get more yield doing that. Uh, you know, the, you know, the expansion is going to last forever. And we just said, hey, look, you know, retail is going to continue to evolve. The ones that are going to evolve with it are going to be around in 10, 20, 30 years. And the ones that are, you know, cash strapped and pulling the cash out of the business and not, you know, focusing on, on what's around the corner, uh, I think are going to struggle. And you've you know, certainly seen some bankruptcy. You know, retail is a you know, four-letter word uh, in, in, in some, people, in some, some people's minds. And so we really focus on what's working and what we think is going to work long-term and, and you know, having real estate that's fungible. So when you get something wrong, you're not getting burned and you can replace those rents uh, and having tenants that we think are, you know, are going to survive long-term so we don't have a lot of disruption in our rents. And so, and of course, you know, we start deploying capital uh, very early on and you know, the pandemic hits. And so, uh, which was you know, the first bit of you know, disruption, which happened you know, obviously very quickly. And you know, we, you know, I think we had a really good handle on what we had and how important our assets were to our tenants, uh, the long-term sustainability of those business plans. Uh, and so we had every, you know, all uh, you know, rent deferrals or abatements uh, and restructures, which we got a lot of lease term in exchange for, for providing those to those tenants. We had all of that done and documented, documented in the second quarter of 2020, where you know, some of the REITs are still kind of you know, fighting those fights and trying to you know, chase down rent. Which I think you know speaks you know to the to the portfolio portfolio quality, but then also speaks to our asset management department uh, of really understanding what it is that we uh, have and what's important to the tenant and and being realistic. You know, if the government's shutting you down, you know, you, you know maybe you shouldn't have to pay rent, but you know we want something in return on the back end, and we're able to you know really get that resolved very quickly. 
And you know, we've we've been receiving 100% of rent, so every penny of rent for the past six months. And I think we're the only net lease REIT uh, in the retail sector, at least, that is that has been receiving 100% of rent. You know, even most recently. So we've been doing that for six months, and and expect to really kind of put COVID in the rearview mirror as best we could in the second quarter of 2020. And we knew that you know, things could change, and maybe we'd have to reopen some of those negotiations uh, if the pandemic continued. But you know, we're getting more and more optimistic with you know, vaccinations that, you know, we were in the right place and, you know, there, there are going to be more disruptions and retail is going to continue to evolve. Uh, so while I think there's a big reopen trade, uh, I agree. I, I mean, I think, you know, certainly there are sectors, you know, movie theaters, I think there will be, I think there's a place for movie theaters that might be rationalized. I think some of the sectors that got hit really hard may come back a bit, but I think there, you know, there, next time there's disruption, uh, I think we're going to be really, really well positioned on a go for a basis. Well, I was going to ask about movie theaters uh, in the portfolio, but I would assume at 100% rent collection, I, I assume you don't have any theater exposure whatsoever? Yeah, no, that's right. So we, okay. we don't have any experienceable real estate at all, okay. Okay. Uh, which, you know, we, we didn't anticipate the, the pandemic, uh, but we did an anticipate the fact that that real estate is much less fungible. So when we talk about fungibility of the real estate, you know, we don't want to have gyms where we're refilling pools. And, you know, I've kind of played that game uh, working at other REITs. Movie theaters are very difficult to, to reposition. They're very costly to reposition. Uh, so we really like, you know, kind of your vanilla box uh, and, and you know, that are really well situated for uh, for e-commerce and the changing demands of, of the consumer. And then also great traffic, uh, traffic counts, ingress, egress, you know, all, all the things that are you know, visibility, all the things that we know that the other tenants that we want in our portfolio would be interested in those boxes. We want to make sure that, you know, we're not just saying, hope it works for these guys. And if not, you know, we've got a big loss. Yeah, um, really want to you know really think about the downside uh, when we're acquiring assets. Yeah, I I, uh, I think we both can speak from experience. I, I built a theater just right across the street from my uh, my office here, and it's now uh, it's now an extra space storage. They tore it down, of course, and um, you know it is hard to repurpose. I mean, is and and you know um, so I, I fully agree with that. And I've built quite a few advanced auto parts stores and O'Reilly Auto Parts, and those are you know, those boxes are really easy to. Uh, to retrofit and they're fairly generic. And so I, I fully agree with you there. Um, I want to talk, Mark, if we could, a little bit now kind of about the growth of your company. And uh, I guess one of the great things about NetStreet is you're still relatively small. Uh, you got a, uh, looks like a uh, market cap of around 500 million or so roughly. Um, so certainly, you know, can move the needle. So how, how are you going to move the needle in terms of your capitalization and where are you going to come up with, with, with all this money to uh, to grow, because obviously there's a lot of opportunity. We just talked about supply and demand. Uh, you're a small company, so how are you going to you know put this money to work, and where's it coming from? Yeah, no, it's a great question, I, and I think that's you know the big advantage. You know, one of the big advantages for us is you know we've got a you know a newer portfolio that you know I think is fairly pristine. Obviously, you know we're collecting 100% of rent. Uh, you know, it's it's in it's in really good shape. Uh, but I, you know, turning to the to the you know the growth vehicles that you know that we approach, you know, you know there's a, a massive market. You know, there's really only other you know two other uh, public REITs that are focused on you know your investment grade and you know high quality uh, you know tenancy from a corporate credit perspective. Uh, but they're much larger than us, so they're you know kind of you know really need to put a lot of capital to work to move the needle. And so to your point, you know you know we've set our acquisition goal for for 2021 at 320 million dollars. Uh, you know, we hit that goal, especially at the cap rates that we've been able to achieve. You know, that gives us the best growth in the in the entire NetLease space. And so uh, we're really excited about that. And we want to be really thoughtful about how we're deploying that capital. So 
$320 million a year, eight, you know, $80 million a quarter, significantly less than uh, the appetite of what you see with some of the other, other peer sets. So you know, the way we think about that is there, you know, it's a highly fragmented market. Uh, and, and you know, that allows us to be you know, really kind of build out a bell curve of our opportunity set. Uh, and, you know, in terms of what is, uh, you know, how things are priced and, you know, some are much more inefficiently priced, uh, some are very aggressively priced on the other, on the other tail. And then you've got kind of, you know, kind of what's market pricing in the middle of that bell curve. Uh, and I think, you know, the other, you know, larger REITs are really kind of taking out the bigger chunk of the middle of that, of that bell curve as they should, uh, in order to be able to acquire enough. But for us, we can be highly selective and really kind of chop off that left side of the tail. Uh, and achieve higher higher cap rates, and that's you know typically going to be you know us getting more creative in how we get into an opportunity. Uh, you know, we put a few case studies in our in our presentation on our on our website on our website at midstreet.com uh, that shows like you know a good example. You know, there's a shopping center REIT selling a shopping center that had a, a Walmart and a Sam's Club in it. Uh, you know, we send in our LOI for the for the Sam's Club at the Walmart, and they call back and say, you know, thanks guys, but you know, we really want to sell the whole shopping center. There's some you know, junior boxes, there's a Tuesday morning, there's some shop space, you know, shorter term leases and, you know, some hairy stuff that, you know, we don't really want to own. Um, and so we said, okay, great. Uh, you know, we've, you know, partnered with a Dallas based value add uh, multi-tenant buyer and, you know, put the deal together, had to make a lot of changes to the REA and, you know, it took five months to close the deal, but closed concurrently with that partner. They bought the rest of the center. They've done a phenomenal job releasing it and, and really kind of enhancing the value of the adjacent property. And we get the Sam's Club and the Walmart, uh, you know, 12 years of lease term, the main, uh, the main retail corridor in Tupelo, Mississippi, cheap rents, which we love because those are going to be replaceable in, in a downside scenario. And we got a 6.6% cap rate, which I think if you just go out on the market and, you know, go try to find a Walmart with 12 years of lease term, that's, you know, a strong performer, it's going to be in the five somewhere, uh, you know, probably low to mid five. So, you know, us taking a five months to go through all the brain damage to, to get that deal done moves the needle for us. And so, you know, that's going to, that's going to be the case for a, for a long period of time, you know, 6.8% cap rate that we achieved in the fourth quarter, substantially uh, higher uh, than kind of the other two peers that focus, you know, in what people view as our sandbox of, of high quality uh, net lease. Um, but, you know, when we have to acquire 80 million a quarter, we can do a bunch of those deals. We'll do blended extends, which you know, I'm sure you're familiar with, or you find a shorter term lease on the market, which trades at a higher cap rate. You know, we get it on a, under LOI. We're really competing with, you know, 1031 individual uh, type buyers that likely don't have a relationship with the tenant. You know, we get it under LOI. We, we, we contact the tenant. We say, hey, you know, is this a site that you're, you're you know, you want to be in long term? If so, we're happy to cut your rent if you extend the lease. Uh, and then we typically will come in at a slightly higher cap rate. We've got a location that the tenant's committed to long term. Uh, and, it, you know, we've, we've got a lower basis. So, you know, the rent's cheaper. So if something goes wrong, it's easier to replace that rent. That's great. That uh, that this uh, really speaks my language. I mean, this reminds me of the old days when I was a developer, and uh, you know, you're right. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of ways you can uh, create value, and your your bigger peers just aren't you know equipped for that. They're too big, and um, you know they need you know they need two hundred million dollar portfolios to grow, and uh, you can take a little more time, be a little more tactical, and 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 hence create more value. You know, so. Um, hey, you know, now that I'm not a developer, maybe I just need to buy NetStreet and then, uh, you know, that's continue to buy. Full disclosure, I do own a few shares now. Um, Mark, can you also uh, touch on, I know being small, you don't have the, you know, the, uh, the ratings yet from S&P, Moody's, Fitch, et cetera. 
So obviously, but I know you're, you're really trying to ultimately move towards those types of ratings. Can you talk a little bit about kind of how you plan to evolve to, uh, to really, you know, get uh, more better, better uh, pricing power in terms of your cost of capital? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, ironically, in, in the short term, our cost of capital is artificially low. Uh, you know, you know, our, you know, we've got a $175 million term loan, all in, uh, you know, it's hedged, you know, to maturity. Uh, you know, it's 136 basis points. So uh, <laughs> it's about as cheap as you can get. Uh, yeah. But it's not really sustainable to, to, you know, operate the balance sheet like that long term. Right. You know, $725 million of assets at, at year end. Uh, we think when we get to about $2 billion uh, in assets, which should come in the next you know, you know, year or two, uh, we'll have the size to be able to go to the rating agencies, get a rating, and then you know, very similar to the, the way the other public REITs operate, you know, we already have an unsecured uh, credit facility and revolver, so we can borrow on the revolver, you know, that starts to get, you know, you know, start to use some of that, and then you go out, you have two or $300 million on that, you have to do either an equity offering uh, or, or an unsecured bond offering uh, with an investment grade rating. Great way to kind of max fund. I think that's, you know, certainly, you know, the way a lot of the REITs do it makes sense. You know, we, we love simple, uh, especially when it works. Um, and so that's, that's the long-term plan. But, you know, for right now, you know, we, you know our spreads are even wider uh, because we're artificially boring low. Okay. Um, if you could also tell me a little bit about the dividend policy. It looks like now, at least on my screen, I'm seeing about a 4.5% yield um, today. And um, can you talk a little bit about your dividend policy? I know, you know, you, you listed in August, as I said earlier, um, and, and in terms of how do you feel about this current payout ratio today? Yeah, sure. So, uh, you know, when we deploy the capital, which, you know, uh, will happen, you know, up until our next uh, you know, equity offering, uh, you know, we think we're going to kind of be in that two thirds to three quarters, uh, you know, payout ratio, which, you know, of course, of course, very healthy allows us to, you know, reinvest in some properties and, and you know, gives us a little bit of, you know, flexibility there. Uh, but you're right. I mean, with the growth profile that we have, you know, it's, you know, significantly better uh, than, than the other public REITs. So AFFO grows, that allows our board to make the decision to increase uh, our dividend. Uh, you know, our conversations indicate, you know, we want to stay in that two thirds to three quarters payout ratio. So, uh, you know, always the board's decision. So there's always, always that caveat. Um, but, you know, I, you know, I think our goal is to, to keep that pay, payout ratio in that range uh, and increase the dividend as AFFO increases. Great. Um, the growth profile of the company is pretty impressive, as you just pointed out. And um, it looks like, it, you, according to our research, you've got around 10 analysts that are um, providing us with consensus growth estimates for 2021. Um, but what's really, when you look at the kind of year over year run rate going out to 22, and I don't have that many analysts, you know, I see, I see double digit, you know, mid double digit, 15% growth. Even beyond that, I don't have that many analysts, a couple, three actually going out to 23, but I'm still seeing that. So at least a couple analysts are in agreement that, um, you know, this is a pretty sustainable um, pipeline of growth opportunities out there. So, um, and I guess my, my last question, Mark, is kind of, you know, obviously we know that the there's a lot of predictability in these lease contracts, long-term lease contracts, but I guess it really comes down to product and being able to access, you know, source new deals. You've touched on some really creativity, what, you know, creative ways that you're sourcing uh, new product. Um, I, I want to, I guess, ask you two things. I know we've got the 1031 exchange law, which is now potentially 
uh, being discussed uh, could, could make some changes uh, to that. But also in, in context with the 1031, what are your thoughts on that? But also, are you able to use the upreach structure like some of your peers also? I know you need to have certain size. You're not going to take, you know, $2 million deals and trade, trade stock. You need fairly good size. But is that a, is that a tool that you plan on, I, I guess, utilizing going forward? Yeah, and that's it's a, it's a great point. Uh, you know, and we are we are set up as an as an upreach. Uh, you know, we do have um, you know some OP unit holders in in our capital structure right now, which are essentially the same as same as common stock. Uh, you know, other than that their shares don't trade on the exchange, but you know, as far as investors look at that, is you know essentially the same exact thing. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the ten thirty one, you know, it's being talked about a lot more uh, than it has in the past. I do think that there uh, is likely a lot of lobbyists with a lot of power that will likely you know, put up a pretty good fight there. Uh, but you know, the winds of change you know, seem to indicate that that could actually be on the table. Uh, and you know, for us, we look at the 1031 as a great vehicle for us to be able to sell into. It's a very deep, maybe a little bit less sophisticated market that we can sell um, you know, some credit risk into, or you know, if we want to diversify our 7-Eleven exposure. Uh, you know, which is you know, a great tenant, but we have a little bit more than what we'd like. We can sell that at a very aggressive cap rate. So, you know, we certainly benefit from that on the margin, uh, but we don't really think we're going to be big sellers of assets, uh, you know, in, in the coming years, even though we've, you know, used that in the past and made some pretty good, uh, pretty good gains doing that. Um, but really on the acquisition side, that's really who we compete with. You know, we're not competing with the, the other public REITs. We're not really competing with, you know, larger institutions. We're competing with, and a small family office, 1031 type buyers. And so if that law gets repealed, I think our, uh, our opportunity set drastically increases uh, and you know, likely even get better uh, yields you know, than, we, than we have, which you know, I think right now, the risk adjusted you know, rates and, and spreads that we're getting right now are awfully attractive. I think that could even get a little bit better. Uh, and then, yeah, I mean, you bring up a, an excellent point. We've had conversations with people uh, as it relates to the upreach structure uh, it's a great way for people to kind of do something very similar to the 1031, where they take their assets and they contribute uh, them into our REIT, uh, and they get operating you know, partnership units, which they can exchange in for common shares one to one uh, whenever they want. Uh, but they control the dest their destiny as it relates to uh, you know, capital gains, no capital gains until the exchange into common shares and realize that gain. So it's very similar to the to the 1031, other than it's the end of the line, so they can't keep doing it. Uh, where the 1031, you can just keep doing that into, into perpetuity as long as that law uh, is still intact. But it is a very attractive alternative already. I think if the 1031 goes away, I think you will see a lot of uh, upreach transactions. Right. Well, one of my email addresses has 1031 in it, so I'll have to get a new email address. Let's hope, hope it didn't go away. Yeah. Um, well, Mark, I, uh, I really appreciate your time today, and uh, I wish you the best in, in terms of uh, you know, this year, it looks like we're, you know, we're not out of the woods yet, but obviously we're seeing, uh, you know, signs of recovery, um, you know, across the country. Uh, we call it, you know, kind of the travel getting uh, phase, I guess. And, um, you know, I wish you the very best and we'll, we'll definitely uh, circle back and catch up with you after the first quarter uh, of this year, later on. Sounds great. Thanks, Brad. Great. Thank you.